Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and with me today are Ron Smith and Matt Bennett, and both these gentlemen have served as members and leaders here at Grace for some time, and in the coming minutes, we're going to be discussing our recent sermon focusing on Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 46. So Ron and Matt, thanks for being with us. appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. We have been progressing thus far through five major teaching discourses here in Matthew's Gospel, and and we've moved deep to this session into the Passion Week, where we believe on Thursday, that's kind of where we think we are. Uh, There may be a little divergence of views on that, but Thursday is where we think we're pegging this particular passage. And as we begin our discussion today, I want to give you both a, a similar opportunity to the one I gave Tim last week. Tim shared about what has been impactful to him thus far in our study of Matthew. We're in chapter 26. We have 26 chapters to talk about. What has hit you most uh, most heavily about our study of Matthew? Well, glad to be here and uh, enjoy talking about these things with you. I think when you look at Matthew and you see the structure that he's put into the book in general, and almost an apologetic form of the life of Christ and seeing how he appeals to the Jews, but also in Matthew setting up the church. And we see that very clearly, the the beginning of the church in Matthew 16. But then beyond that, it's so very practical. And again and again, it's not just looking at a biographical picture of the life of Christ, but there are areas in Matthew that almost feel like an epistle. When I forget sometimes, Matthew 18, we use that in our church documents and realize that Jesus is talking about very practical church matters, very practical issues that we are dealing with now. And Matthew structures that intentionally. And um, there are a number of other ways in which you see that structure where the life of Christ impacts us on a daily on a daily basis. And Ron, you, you talk about the church setting up the church. It's sometimes hard to remember. We have to keep in mind the context here they didn't have the context of the church. They had the context of the gathering of the of the Jewish believers at synagogue each week. But the church would have been somewhat of a foreign concept to them at that time. Which is why it's ironic to me sometimes to, to go back and see, okay, this was, he's speaking of the church, but he's introducing this concept while he's speaking to it. Matt? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the noticing the structure and the intentionality with which Matthew uh, tells this story, I think, like Ron is saying, is, has been really neat. Uh, I think for me, also, the way that it is such a clear portrayal of the Old Testament coming to life in the life of Christ, that all of these things that Matthew is drawing our attention back to, that Jesus is grabbing a hold of and wrapping around himself telling the Jewish community, I'm, I'm the one you're waiting for. Like, I am that Messiah. And having uh, section after section after section that's so laden with Old Testament themes that are coming to vivid 
display in the life of Jesus, I think, has been just a, a good reminder that we're, we're whole Bible people. And what we see in Christ is a long-awaited, beautiful revelation of what God has done to make good on his promises way back in Genesis 3.15. A continuation of the story that, as you say, happened, started way back in Genesis, continues on through Revelation and on into eternity. I, I tell you, one of the things that it, uh, I'll just pipe in here that has been made even clearer to me, we've been encouraged, and, and I know the ones who are preaching, Tim and uh, other members of the preaching team, have been focusing on the text in Matthew. I find myself, you know, we're talking today about the the Passover, we're talking about the Lord's Supper, but I find myself when I'm preparing for a, a adult Bible fellowship lesson or so forth, I like to go to that Mark passage, I like to go to the Luke passage. I've been trying to curb myself of that. Not that it's bad. It's certainly good to get a better rounded view, understanding of what was going on because each gospel writer shares maybe a, their, well, different perspective of what's going on of the same events. But making sure I understand what was Matthew's point in putting specifically the points, or the, the description of each area of, uh, of the book, it's interesting to see that and see that come together just what you're saying just continuing the narrative matt and and ron you're talking about what you were saying it's just good to see what matthew's saying and remember okay this is a certain focus he's pointing us to the the culmination of the prophecies of throughout the old testament on into the new well matt some churches celebrate communion daily i think of some of our, our catholic friends who go to mass regularly daily certainly weekly some celebrate it weekly sandy and i were in a church where we celebrated the communion table weekly others monthly or even i know there are those who just celebrate it once a year fairly recently here at grace we changed our rhythm we, we had been a once monthly we moved here within the past year or two into a two times a month uh, focus on this observance. Can you share what went into that discussion? Ron and I were not there for those discussions. We were not serving officially as elders at that time. You were. Why are we doing that now twice a month? Yeah. Well, I think there's there's a tension, right, between recognizing this is one of those central elements in which we are rehearsing the gospel that makes us a distinct community, that we're not just a club that gathers on Sunday mornings, but there's something distinctive that sets believers who are covenanted together uh, in the gospel and as a church apart from the Lions Club or, you know, some, some social gathering. And so there is a sense in which the, the assumption of the scriptures in, in many places is, well, when you gather as the church and take the Lord's Supper, this is how you should do it. That's how Paul frames it, not necessarily the first Sunday of the month or, you know, quarterly, but it it seems more uh, embedded in what a gathering of the church is when you look at some of the texts that are relevant to this. At the same time, there is that human tendency to take something that is so profound and make it something mundane by uh, repetition. And so I think, I think there is a, there's a tension that we're trying to recognize of retaining the, um, the beauty uh, and the remembrance of what brings us together by not making it something that is uh, just a perfunctory part of our gathering, while also not neglecting to highlight that as, as what makes us distinct. And so 
um, this rehearsal of the gospel is something that we we do value. Uh, not that churches who do it quarterly don't value it, um, but but I do think that the the push of scripture does tend to be more towards a regular expectation of what it means to gather as a church. And so I think for that reason, we have been more inclined to move towards a uh, every other week type uh, approach to it. And one of the themes that has come up throughout the uh, our study in Matthew is preaching the gospel, remembering to preach the gospel to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Every time we are observing the, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, we are, in fact, preaching the gospel once again, rehearsing what he did for us. And not only preaching it to ourselves and rehearsing that, uh, that remembrance of what Christ has done, as well as looking forward to the day when we will celebrate the, the, the consummation of this meal and the, the supper of the Lamb, um, but there is opportunity to preach the gospel to those who aren't uh, believers yet. And you may have even noticed that in some of the ways that we present communion um, and the elements of communion actually saying if if you're not a believer this this isn't for you um, but this would be a good time for you to observe what's going on and and ask the people around you what what does this mean um, and I, I know that may not be our primary uh, frontline evangelism but I do think it pushes us as a church to both be ready to give an answer for what we're doing here and it's an element in the service that could be provocative uh, for those who are in our midst, who are just guests and and would like to follow up on why we're taking these tiny little crackers and <laughs> why why there's this whole uh, the, this whole industry that has created these prepackaged <laughs> tiny little sips of of juice right. and things of that nature. Well, you know, Ron, much is said throughout Christendom about how one should observe communion. You. Uh, I, Matt, we all come from different traditions, and I guess if we were to sit here and speak about, hey, I remember when or what we did, mm-hmm. Paul devotes a significant portion of First Corinthians 10 and 11, throughout 10 and 11, to this very discussion of how, and in fact, Paul's saying sometimes how not to do it, but when we come to the time in our services when we remember Jesus in this way, can you give us some practical guidelines about how we should be approaching this time of celebration of worship? Well, I remember in college, a friend of mine said, who was at Cedarville with me, he was excited to get back home to our home church because he wanted to celebrate communion. He said, I need that. And that struck me because I had always enjoyed and appreciated communion, but I had never really seen it as this deeply felt need in the spiritual walk. And when I look at the things that we're supposed to be doing, the things that we do, what we're trying to accomplish individually and corporately with communion, I think that there are two that in particular come to mind. One is a time of introspection. Through, If you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 11, we are instructed to examine ourselves. And I think of that in terms of Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. 
try me, know my thoughts, or Psalm 19:12 when David says, acquit me of hidden faults. And I think that personal examination, confession of sin is part of what we should be doing. But the second thing that strikes me is extending that to our relationship with the community of the church. The reason that Paul brings this up is that there were divisions in the church and that what they were doing, even though they were calling it the Lord's Supper, Paul says it's not the Lord's Supper at all. Don't put that on Jesus, what you're doing, right? (laughs) Right. So uh, we need to identify where we are not in communion with the fellow believers, and we should make that right. So some of it really needs to be even preparation before we come together. Now, this is all done, again, remembering the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord. So we're seeing this within that context. And as we, typically you'll have a a song related to his death and there'll be a song about his blood. And and I think that is appropriate for us to spend time remembering that, but then to go further and say, how does that impact me specifically in my personal life, but then how does that impact how I'm supposed to be relating to the fellow, the rest of the congregation? So order of service. Now, just this past Sunday, we uh, kind of inserted the Lord's Supper in between, in the middle of the sermon. Um, Different churches handle it different ways. I know when I go to a church that does it a little differently, I get thrown out of my loop Can you talk, either of one of them, do you talk about uh, ways to kind of rise above that? Uh, We've all, like I said, we've all come from different traditions, but the format is important, but it's not the only thing I would suggest. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there are standard or maybe stereotypical ways that sometimes we will, uh, you know, go to 1 Corinthians 11, read the instructions, because this is the clearest, most succinct place to you know, go to a passage in Scripture that details what we are remembering. But I, I thought it was great the way Pastor Tim just kind of wove that in and said, this is when we take this cup, this is what we are doing. When we remember the broken body, this is Jesus' instruction and where it comes from in Matthew's narrative of these events that, uh, that does uh, naturally connect both to the events in history, but then also to the theological ramifications. And so I think that occasional disruption of our expected order does lend itself to maybe deepening our understanding again, refreshing our, our memory of what it is that we're doing. Yeah, and I'm sort of a, I tend to be a glass half full kind of a guy. So when there's a difference, different way of doing things, I'm like, okay, what can I learn from this? And how can I worship better as a result of having been here? Uh, I know the tradition that Sandy and I come from uh, back when we were first getting, when we were first married was we observed every week and it was a quiet time of introspection. There was, there were no instrumentalists. There was nobody up front. There was no 
focus on an individual. It was focused solely on the the elements and on the remembering him uh, and remembering what he had done. So it very different. But again, I think I, I would encourage people, hey, let's let's focus on the person, the the host, because he is the host mm-hmm. of this dinner, uh, so to speak, and remembering what he has done for us. I think it's been valuable for me to be in other churches, other settings where this is observed and celebrated because you get little different pictures. You know, sometimes there's one bread that's passed around and then sometimes, maybe not so much now, but in the past, there might be one cup that's passed around. And my son was in Israel and they would celebrate this and he called that the cup of sickness. (laughs) (laughs) But there are other opportunities and others, just different structures. And it, I think, provides just a different perspective on the same event that allows us to think about it in new ways. Viva la difference. (laughs) Well, we we come here in verse 36 of chapter 26 to what I would call a very poignant scene. Jesus has taken the disciples to Gethsemane. Then he takes Peter, James, and John, those three, we'll say closest associates, uh, a little further on into the garden. Tim made it a point to dwell on the cup that Jesus references there in verse 39. He says, he begs the Father, let this cup pass from me. It it seems to me, and I I don't want to betray the, the true emotions of what's going on here, but Jesus is so in control. We've talked about this over the past number of weeks. Jesus is in control of the circumstances throughout the whole of Matthew. But to use what I believe is perhaps a proper theological phrase, this really freaks him out. That's hard to think mm-hmm. of. And, and maybe I'm misreading it, but it really seems to freak Jesus out. The idea of the cup of wrath. I, I think there's there's certainly a gravity to it. I, I want to be careful with the idea of um, uh, You don't like freak Jesus. out. Well, I, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> okay. but I, I want to be careful about presenting Jesus as anything but a voluntary, willing participant in this God-willed, God-ordained path to bring about the redemption that there is no other way for. And so, I, I and at the same time, I don't want to downplay the the gravity of bearing God's righteous wrath against sin. And so there is a tension. You're sitting here. on the fence here, Bennett. There, so, well, yeah. <laughs> there is a tension here, and I do think there are other times where Matthew's gospel does present some of Jesus's uh, humanity in its richness for us, both as a uh, an affirmation that he truly is man and he has assumed humanity as the second person of the Trinity in order to be that perfect demonstration of what humanity was to do in submission to God. And there are those elements that uh, being fully man, he does embrace, he does engage in. There are also times where it tells us that, you know, this is done so that you may, uh, this is not for my sake, but it is for your sake. Some of the uh, the things that the disciples are exposed to in Jesus's life, his reaction to things are instructive of what is the proper human response. Mm-hmm. And so I think in, uh, in a sense, yes, we do see Jesus here in his humanity, realizing the gravity of sin that he is about to take upon himself. But even in his prayer, uh, 
even the language of, of begging, I, I don't know that I would go that far because there does seem to be a settledness of saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. And there's a lot to be unpacked there with asking, how does the second person of the Trinity express a will distinct from the will of the Father? And this is where I, I think uh, it's good for us to tap into some of our whole scripture uh, knowledge and to bring some theological reflection to bear on this, to say, yes, on one, in one way, Jesus, as the God-man, has a will that is God's will that has from eternity past planned to exact this will in the cross. But on the other hand, in taking on humanity, he has a human will which needs to submit itself to that divine plan. And here we're getting a glimpse of what it looks like that Adam, the first man, bent his will towards himself in the garden and walked away, creating this disruption between the image bearer and the image. Jesus, as the second Adam, demonstrates even to the point of his own death, the submission of the human will to the divine that is proper. And so I think there is something to be said for the emotional uh, just wreckage of this moment that, that would be present. But I also think that throbbing consistency of mm -hmm. faithfulness to God's single will to make redemption possible for people who otherwise would be betrayed to their sins. Um, I think it's good for us to not see Jesus as out of control in this, um, but willingly taking those stalwart steps towards Golgotha. Absolutely. I, I loved how Tim identified the cup as representing blessing, but now also representing judgment. And this blessing, which is what Jesus as the Son of God throughout eternity is all he had ever known when he relates to the Father. And as humans with human fathers, our communion with our Father has never been like Jesus had with the Heavenly Father. But we have experienced that time, and because of our own failings, we have that separation, that sense, but we don't have that same bond with our fathers. Well, Jesus knows this is happening, and he's doing it willingly, but it's happening not because of his own sin, not because of his own failure. And perhaps there is some reality where it's just this harsh suddenness of I knew this was coming, but now that it's hitting me, it is very difficult. And and I don't know if shocking is the right word, but and and we're familiar with this, but I'm not sure if I've ever heard it described in such a personal and intimate and maybe shocking way. Well, it, it is shocking, and and I I go back to that idea of the cup of wrath and of course we see it in revelation uh, on down the road here reminds me of the idea there in i believe it's chapter five of revelation the picture is of a, a scroll that is to be opened and looking around and nobody is worthy to open this scroll mm -hmm. and even john is is tearing up he's crying out he, he wept mm -hmm. there's nobody worthy to open the scroll that has to be opened 
and then he sees him, the lamb, and it's the only one worthy, similarly the only one able to take that cup of wrath. Uh, fascinating, fascinating study. Well, Tim and I spoke at some length recently about this idea of God's wrath, but here we are again in the context of Jesus's drinking from that cup of wrath, and he, he burying it for us. Passages like uh, chapter twenty-three, verse thirty-three of Matthew. He says, "You brood of vipers," talking to the Jewish leaders. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And then again in twenty-five, chapter twenty-five, verse forty-six, and the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteousness into eternal life. So many other passages, not only in Matthew, but throughout the Gospels, the Scriptures uh, as a whole. One really has to take a road that I just can't find to avoid the idea of God's just wrath. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we live in a society, and uh, it, oftentimes it leaks into the church itself that is uncomfortable with the idea of any sort of judgment or any sort of discussion of wrath. I mean, within the church, how many times do you uh, sometimes even sing songs that might hint uh, at wrath being something contrary to who God is and in need of being conquered by his love? But the reality is that's not who God is. God is not a uh, compound of a bunch of different attributes that are at odds with one another and lucky for us, his love won out over his wrath. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. no, his love, love wins. It, <clears throat> sorry sorry his, look that up don't look it up no, don't look it up no. his holiness is rightly expressed in the face of sin as wrath like it, there is nothing about sinfulness or impurity that can abide the holy and righteous presence of our god and that is part of what it means to be god as his perfections are all-consuming And so for us to see God as wrathful against sin is not something that we should be uncomfortable with, but rather should be awestruck by saying, Lord, apart from your intervention, apart from you radically eradicating my sinfulness from me, I cannot possibly enter your presence. And yet I know that you made me in your image and you made me to be in your presence. And so what is it that can possibly remedy this situation well it is his holiness expressed through his mercy in christ as the one who has drink drank that cup of god's righteous wrath to its dregs allowed him to justly pour out his wrath on one who would volunteer to consume it and yet not be consumed by it Um, and i think that's what we see in the cross and the resurrection is god justly pouring out his wrath against sin so that he might pour out his grace uh, on on sinners. And what I hear you saying here is that one cannot fully understand God's love without fully understanding his his just nature his and the wrath that goes along with that against sin. You, that's exactly right. You can't get there if you don't see this wrath and you don't understand your own situation before God. Otherwise, there's, there's no impetus for the Holy Spirit to even make that change. And uh, Tim talked about Christ's agony when he glimpsed God's judgment rather than love. 
and he saw God's punishment rather than acceptance. So Christ taking that judgment, taking that punishment instead of the love and acceptance, and then transferring to us so that we don't have that judgment and that punishment, and we receive God's love and acceptance, which Jesus had always and continues to experience. Getting back to context, getting back to, you've mentioned it, Matt, earlier, uh, understanding and seeing the whole of Scripture, uh, seeking to understand the whole of God's nature is essential to understanding who God is and why he calls us to do what he calls us to do. And when we understand who God is, then we also have to understand what sin is. And I think, you know, going all the way back to... Early father of the church Anselm writing on some of the uh, the issues of sin. Uh, there's a famous book where it's a dialogue between Anselm and a guy named Bozo. Which if you're going to have a conversation <laughs> partner who's on the bad side, you should oh, name him wow. Bozo. Uh, but Bozo asks Anselm, you know, why why did God become man? Why didn't he just sort of dismiss sin out of hand? Like this seems unnecessary. And Anselm's famous response is, my dear boy, you have not rightly considered the weight of sin. And I mm. think wow. to realize what it is that we are saying when we say, I have sinned against a holy and eternal God. It's not just, I made a mistake, I messed up, but it is, I have rebelled against the one who is, who is glorious beyond measure, and I have denied the recognition of his glory that he is due and in so doing, I've corrupted my own soul because I was made to find my fulfillment in worshiping him and being satisfied in him. And so when we understand the weight of what our sin is as an offense against who God is, uh, that begins to reshape our thinking of what God's wrath is and the properness of it, which then only leads to greater appreciation for his grace. And then we come to verse 42. when After a significant intense and agonizing prayer time in prayer uh, and john shares by the way that his sweat fell to the ground as great drops of blood uh, does that mean that was actually blood he was sweating blood or whatever it, it may but jesus utters these words in this context he says my father if this cannot pass unless i drink it your will be done getting back to what you were sharing earlier matt so as ones who are called to be like jesus Ron, how does this kind of statement model what we are to be doing? You know, uh, there have been examples of individuals who have taken this far too literally and actually have decided that they should follow Christ's example and somehow reenact or somehow go through this crucifixion themselves, and that is not at all what we are called to do as believers. Uh, And admittedly, when you look at this, it doesn't seem to fit very well with maybe John Piper's description of the Christian hedonist. There's not a lot of room for describing this as, as joy. This is Jesus saying that what he is about to go through is misery. But I, if you think about it in a different way, our call to be like Jesus is not to be separated from God like Jesus is about to experience here, 
But our call is to see the communion with God the way Jesus saw it, which was the reason that the separation was so difficult for him. It's for us to have the same horror at the thought of separation as Jesus had. We are called to love God so much that even the thought of separation shakes us to our core. And I think even as you mentioned, describing this as something other than joy, it, it does bring to mind other passages where we do see Jesus saying, well, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And mm-hmm. there is something uh, that he's demonstrating here in his faithfulness to, I would say, that divine will that has not taken a misstep, has not faltered in its faithfulness, and that faithfulness to God's will, faithfulness to worship and obey is being demonstrated by that second Adam here in Gethsemane. And uh, as we go to Golgotha and as we see the resurrection, there is a joy set before him of saying submission even unto death is appropriate for humanity in, in the face of God. And I'm going to demonstrate that to its greatest degree as the God-man. Mm-hmm. Michael Card. A singer, Matt, that you may not be as familiar with as Ron and I, <laughs> being a little older than you, but uh, he describes this moment as that one forsaken moment when the father turned his face away. One forsaken moment in time. And we can diverge a lot in that particular statement, but the idea being, uh, just to be clear, that Jesus bearing the weight of the sin of the whole world for all time for us, drinking the, down to the dregs of that cup, and not being defeated by it, having victory over that. Wow. Hmm. All right, all right, Bart. So you did bait me with a little <laughs> bit of that uh, father turns his face away, and maybe I was alluding you to didn't some bite. of that. You didn't bite <laughs> as quickly as I be, thought you might. I was trying to be good. Um, uh, I was alluding to that even in some of the ways that some of our songs maybe uh, build up some of that emotional connection with imagining what must it have been like for a father to reject his son and uh, this this idea of bearing God's wrath. I get squeamish about some of that language of introducing something that would look like a separation between the eternal father and the eternal son, because this is one of our central doctrines going back to going back to Deuteronomy 6, that we have one God. And as we see throughout the biblical revelation, particularly most clearly in the incarnation and the sending of the Spirit, that one God of Deuteronomy 6 is the same God who is God and Father and Lord uh, Jesus Christ, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, that our God is eternally one in three persons. And so if we introduce in some of our desire to emotionally connect with what was happening on the cross as the Son bears the wrath of God against sin, uh, we begin to sometimes imagine scenarios that are more akin to our earthly relationships, and we say, I couldn't imagine being rejected by my dad. There is a gravity that we want to wrestle with, with the eternal God bearing sin, Jesus being made sin on our behalf that we might become his righteousness. Those are weighty things, but I think one 
place that I get real squeamish is when we start talking about a division within the persons of the Trinity. Can that happen? Yeah, now we have two-thirds God and one-third abandoned for a time. And sometimes people will say, well, Jesus said from the cross, right? Uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he was forsaken, right? Well, uh, he was forsaken to death in his humanity, taking on death as the, the person of Jesus. But in terms of some sort of eternal separation, if we introduce a moment in time in eternity when one person of the Trinity ceases to be united, ceases to be triune, we disrupt our God. And, in fact, that even disrupts the flow of salvation because if there is a moment in time where the one who's bearing our sin is not eternal, then he can't actually bear an eternal offense against an eternal God. And so I think... I get a little squishy around some of the language that we use in this season to talk about what is happening on the, tr- on the cross as it pertains to our triune God. And I want to be very protective of saying God does not cease to be in communion within the Trinity. There is no, no f- fracturing of the three persons where they come apart for a time in order to come back together. But there is a an exhaustion of the one God's righteous wrath, righteous wrath against sin that is born by the second person of the Trinity, but is also part of the corporate will to redeem creatures. A shout out to Michael Card for contributing to our discussion. Thank you very much. Well, Ron Smith and Matt Bennett have been my guests for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace, and we've been discussing a recent sermon here at Grace from Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 46. You can access that message as well as other Grace Baptist Church sermons and podcast episodes by using your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcasts on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next week. We'll be with Jeremy Kimball. He'll be joining me here as we continue our discussion of God's Word through the end of Matthew chapter 26. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning in to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.